Hi, it's Shelley Flett, and I'm so excited that you're joining me to listen to the Dynamic Leader podcast. The podcast is centered around my book, The Dynamic Leader, and includes reading of the chapters, along with interviews with leaders in a number of different industries. If you haven't already done so, I encourage you to get yourself a copy of The Dynamic Leader, either online through booktopia.com or at any good bookstore. I'm passionate about creating the next generation of dynamic leaders and sharing tools and experiences that can completely transform an individual, a team, or a whole organization. I ask that you listen with curiosity and be open to taking on different perspectives. I hope you enjoy. Welcome back. Today, we're moving on to chapter nine of the book, looking at inspiring respect. For those of you reading along with the book, we are on page 195. I have a theory that you can't respect someone you don't like. Sure, you can respect the decision that someone has made without liking that person, but I don't see how you can respect the person. Well, this is my theory right now. I'm open to different ways of seeing things. So if you fundamentally disagree, I'd love to have a chat with you. If we go with this, however, that to respect someone, you must like them, then investing in relationships becomes your first priority. If your staff know you, trust you, and feel like they can be themselves around you, creating an environment for them to respect you shouldn't be too complicated. As a leader, you want your staff to respect not only you, but also their colleagues, business partners, stakeholders, and the wider network they operate within. This, for some teams, might also include respecting your customers. So what does it mean to respect someone else? In this chapter, I cover why respect is a fundamental part of building a dynamic team and outline how to inspire your people to respect you and see that they have a role just as important as you to be true to themselves and those around you. In figure 9.1 of the book, You can see how inspiring respect in your staff is the second core component of the dynamic leadership model and one that leads to strong engagement. Respect is about seeing others' perspectives and acknowledging that no one is ever right and no one is ever wrong. There are no right ways to do things and no wrong ways to do things, just different ways. When we can learn to take on different perspectives, we can learn to respect different points of view. Next, Respect is about showing curiosity and exploring the gap we need to close to reach our full potential as leaders. This requires patience and an openness to listen. Finding a leader who truly listens, not a leader who simply hears what they think they need to and responds, is very rare. In this chapter, we discuss how leaders who listen also become really good at asking questions that evoke understanding and remove judgment. Finally, respect is about being adaptable and using your full spectrum of communication skills to determine the most optimal approach, depending on the context and the audience for a given situation. It is when we are willing to take on a different perspective and have the curiosity to listen and ask questions without applying judgment, and then adapt our style to suit the context and the audience that we inspire our staff to respect us and increase engagement. Respect or fear. In the past, respect was demanded. Leaders operated from a position of power and control and staff responded out of fear. Today, respect is earned and leaders must operate from a position of influence. 
This means creating deep, meaningful relationships and being able to encourage creative thinking and challenging different views. Today's leaders must do what it takes to get the best out of their people and deliver the best for the business. Similar to many other aspects of leadership covered in this book, inspiring others starts with you and how inspired you feel about yourself, your role and your potential. It relates to your ability to build confidence around what you know and what you're capable of achieving through your people. And this confidence is built on humility and not propped up by ego. In The Multiplier Effect, authors Liz Wiseman, Lois Allen and Elise Foster talk about two kinds of leaders. One is the diminisher, the leader who drains intelligence, energy and the capability from the people around them and need to be the smartest person in the room. These types of leaders are the idea killers, the energy sappers, the diminishers of talent and capability. The second is the multiplier the leader at the other end of the spectrum. These leaders use their intelligence to amplify the smarts and capabilities of the people around them. When these leaders walk into a room, light bulbs go on. Ideas flow and problems get solved. These leaders use their smarts to make everyone around them feel smarter and more capable. I think respect is generated when a leader is a multiplier and I think respect is lost when leaders are diminishers or start to take over. So if you are a leader who builds or maintains your confidence through ego and consumes the spotlight, you have a lot of work to do. You might have the attention of your staff, but you definitely won't have their respect. So start with working on the respect you have for yourself and then turn your attention on your team. Start with their different perspectives. Perspective. Perspective is a noun. And the definition, a particular attitude towards a way of regarding something, a point of view. How we form our perspectives comes from past experiences and how we make sense of incoming information based on our filters to delete, distort and generalise. According to the Neurolinguistic Programming Model of Communication, or NLP Model of Communication, we have around 2 million bits of information per second available to us at any given time. This information is presented through our six senses, auditory or what we hear, visual or what we see, kinesthetic or what we feel, auditory digital, what we say to ourselves or our self-talk, olfactory, what we smell and gustatory, which is what we taste. All of this information, we are only able to absorb 134 bits per second, meaning that a lot of information presented to us is simply not taken in. And if you are following along with the book, you'll see this on figure 9.2. How we determine what information we take in and what information we ignore will depend on what we believe to be relevant at any given point. And what we deem to be relevant will depend on past experiences and how we make sense of the world. In other words, we run filters. The filters we use are delete, information that we don't see relevant at the time is deleted. We distort, information that we may not completely understand, we end up making it mean something that perhaps it's not. And generalize, which is where information is generalized by assessing it and putting it into a category that is easy to understand, but not necessarily true. To clarify this a little more, here's an example of how each filter might be applied for a person. Delete. 
When attending a meeting to learn more about a new product or service, you may not notice the patterns on the carpet or the slight whir of the air conditioning. You're focused on the host and what they're saying about the product or service and everything around that is deleted. Distortion. When you're driving your car into car, to a car park, into a parking space, you put your foot on the brake at exactly the same time as the car beside you starts to move. This creates a feeling that you're still moving, like an illusion. Another example of a distortion is when you bump into someone in a department store, turn quickly to apologize and see you're talking to a mannequin. Generalization. When you see an L-shaped frame with four legs at the base, you may assume it's a chair. Or when you see a person dressed in a suit, you might assume they're important or that a person in high visibility vest is a tradie. The filters we use also allow us to be efficient, to make decisions quickly and effectively to get things done. And the filters we use and how we make sense of the information creates our perspective, which isn't necessarily true or false and isn't necessarily right or wrong, it's just different. Our perspective isn't everyone's reality, just our own. Byron Lewis's Magic of NLP supports this. Getting into your staff's heads. There's a table in the book with some examples on some different perspectives playing out in the workplace, comparing your staff's behaviour and thinking to your thinking. Allow me to read some for you now. Your staff's behaviour. They're avoiding eye contact. Your thinking is that they're hiding something and can't be trusted. However, their thinking is I'm feeling so intimidated right now, I wish the world would open up and swallow me whole. Another one. Their behaviour. Disagreeing with an opinion. Your thinking. They're a wet blanket and just want to shoot down everyone's ideas. Their thinking. I'm really concerned about the risk this solution exposes us to and want to make sure that we don't set ourselves up for failure. Or this example. Their behaviour. Saying yes, but doing the opposite. Your thinking. They're just paying me lip service. They don't even care. They're thinking. I accept your point of view, but I disagree and I don't want to cause any conflict, so I'll just nod. Another one. Their behaviour. Screwing their face up when feedback is given. Your thinking. They don't respect me or care about the role that I play. Their thinking. Wow, your breath is really ripe this morning. Maybe ease off on the coffee and cigarettes a little. I'm feeling nauseous. And this one. Their behaviour. Talking about you in a negative way when you're not around. You're thinking, they're superficial and they backstab. They're thinking, I don't really agree with the way you manage the team, but there's no way I'm having that conversation with you. And this one. Their behaviour. Falling asleep in meetings. You're thinking, they don't care about the organisation. This is just a job to them. They're thinking... I've been up all night with sick children. The temperature in the room is too warm and I'm not sure what you're talking about. Or this one. Their behaviour. Taking sick leave on a regular basis. You're, th you're thinking. They're just trying to piss me off. It's just a game to them. They're thinking. I'm feeling really unmotivated and getting out of bed is a massive struggle. So I prefer to call in sick than face a day in a place that makes me terribly unhappy. Or this one. Their behaviour. 
frowning when you attempt to make a conversation. You're thinking, huh, they think they're better than me. They're thinking, okay, this better be good. It's taken me an hour to get in the right frame of mind to complete this task, so I don't want to do it and let it go too quickly. So, how do you know what your staff are thinking? Well, unless you ask them outright, you won't. I'm not saying don't assume because making assumptions is a necessary part of our lives. What I'm saying is be open to other possibilities and go with the assumption that your staff are well-intended and whatever their behavior, it comes from a good place. I know this can be hard to get your head around when so many of us agree on the common meaning behind things such as cars, doors, fridges, etc. It is easy to assume that because we both agree that a door is a door, that we must also agree that someone's who's loud is obnoxious, when actually they might just be thinking quite differently. When you're open to different perspectives, you learn to let go of the tight grip that you have on the reality and start to appreciate the variety of different realities that exist. And when you do this, anything is possible. You can see that your options are endless and that rather than changing the people around you, you can simply change the meaning you've given something. Changing your thinking So how do you change your perspective? Well, you can start to notice how other people view the same situation as you and consider seeing things from their point of view. Or you can ask yourself these questions about a specific event that has generated a high level of emotion. Question one, what happened? Jot down what actually took place, not what you made it mean. For example, a tall man dressed in a navy suit walked into a room, looked around the room and then sat in an empty chair. Question two, what did you make it mean? Write down the meaning that you gave to what took place. For example, an arrogant senior manager walked into the room, saw me, a young, nervous woman sitting to one side of the room and decided he didn't want to be seen near me because I might make him look bad or ruin his image. So he sat in the furthest chair away from me. He definitely doesn't like me. Question three, what else could it mean? Write down all the other possible meanings for the situation. For example, the man in the chair sat closest to the door so as not to interrupt the meeting that had already commenced. Or the man might be recovering from an ear infection and still struggling to hear, so he found a chair closest to the speaker. Or the man sat in the first empty chair he saw so as not to draw too much attention to himself. And so on and so on. Question four. Why are you choosing to make it mean what you did in question two? Consider the purpose behind the original meaning you gave the event. Write down what advantages and disadvantages you gain from making it mean that thing. For example... I have a high need to be liked, so when I think someone doesn't like me, I think the worst of them and make myself feel better. This is my protection strategy. In question five, what would be the benefit of shifting your perspective? Consider the benefits of taking on a different perspective. If you were to practice these questions every time you felt frustrated, upset or annoyed at a situation, you're likely to quickly loosen your grip on your own perspective and start to look at things differently. You'll start to see the gaps in your current way of thinking and look for alternatives. 
you will realize that a lot of perspectives you and all of us have are for self-preservation and don't encourage constant learning and growth. Taking on different perspectives is about forming new habits through repetition and challenging yourself to think differently about things, even if it feels uncomfortable. Keep going because the end outcome will be more positive than your initial thinking that you might have had. Changing what you focus on. I love the TED Talk Perspective is Everything by Rory Sutherland, which is centered on the value of changing what we focus on. One example he uses in his talk is that a six million pounds that was spent on reducing the train journey between Paris and London by 40 minutes. Sutherland argues that for 0.01% of this cost, he could have installed Wi-Fi to improve the enjoyment and usefulness of the journey. And for 10% of that cost, you could have top models handing out Chateau Produce to all the passengers and people would ask for the trains to be slowed down. By changing how we view a situation, we can change the way we feel about it. Changing your perspective. I'll end this section with a little experience that I had with my sons that helped me to see things from their point of view. I had had a long day at work and my daughter was still quite young and was very demanding of my attention. The only time I got to myself was after the kids went to bed. This particular night, the boys were continually getting up and out of bed to ask me a question or tell me things. Can I get a drink of water? Can you sign my permission form? Mum, I have to go to the toilet. I need a cuddle. I love you, mum. And so on and so on. I eventually got frustrated with the constant interruptions to whatever I was watching on Netflix at the time and yelled, go to bed, shut the door, go to sleep and don't come out again. The boys quickly ran into their room and closed the door. There was silence and peace and I continued watching my show. About 10 minutes later, I noticed a piece of paper slip out from under the door of the boys' bedroom. I smiled, paused Netflix again and retrieved the piece of paper, which turned out to be a handwritten note. The note said, If you're tired, you should just go to bed. And we're sorry for being so difficult. Love, Lewis and Riley. I love that they saw my outburst as a result of being tired, and I actually had to consider whether it was caused by tiredness. I also like their simple solution for tiredness, just go to bed, and then pondered how often I used the same line with them. It was a great opportunity to see how they had formed their perspectives. My boys are a great mirror for how I behave, how others perceive my behavior, and how I form my own perspectives. If you don't have a mirror, someone who can challenge your thinking and perspective. Perhaps now would be a great time to find one. Curiosity. The definition of curiosity is a strong desire to know or learn something or an unusual or interesting object or fact. Once a leader becomes open to taking on different perspectives, curiosity becomes easier. For a leader to be truly curious, they must set their judgment aside and assume an openness to learning, even when they think they know all they need to. They recognize that their point of view isn't the only point of view and are not overly critical of those who don't share a similar way of thinking. They appreciate that there's more than one way to peel a banana. Uh, Distraction note here. Did you know that monkeys peel their bananas starting from the outside? starting from the opposite end to what most humans do. They use the stem as the handle, which apparently makes the banana banana easier to hold. 
plus opening from the other end means you don't remove the stringy bits. How we peel a, bit, peel a banana isn't right or wrong, it's just different. So let's not judge different. Let's just be more curious. To become more curious as a leader, you should focus on three things. How you listen, how you ask, and the power of pause. Let's take a look at the three. How you listen. First, there is a lot more listening than what we cover in this chapter. I'm sharing only one of the different perspectives that exist. So read on with the intention of being curious, not judgmental. When a leader develops a strong desire to learn something about someone or something, they're more likely to listen with greater attention. When we're in the middle of a complex task, however, and a staff member, member interrupts us, we not, may not be so eager to give our full attention and listen with curiosity. So the first rule of becoming a curious listening, listener is to create an optimal time and appropriate environment to have the conversation. Don't expect to be able to switch from doing a task that requires deep focus straight into listening with curiosity the minute you're interrupted. Minimize as many of these interruptions as possible and start to put time aside for the conversations towards the end of the day when you've completed your most important tasks. Setting specific times might mean when a staff member interrupts you that you ask if you can meet them later in the day when you have a little more time. Often I see leaders who encourage staff to come to them whenever they have a question and so enable behavior that isn't sustainable. This often means the staff don't need to think for themselves because you've essentially offered to do it for them. If they need urgent support, you would make exceptions, but you'll find that most interruptions are out of habit more than the true need. When it's time to have the conversation, consider moving to an environment where there are minimal distractions. Depending on the topic being discussed, the best space might be a meeting room, a coffee shop, or going outside to walk in the park. Make sure your phone is on silent so that it's not a distraction too. The next rule to becoming a curious listener is to listen with a we focus rather than a me focus. When you're listening with a me focus, you're really not invested in the conversation. Instead, you're making a token attempt and this doesn't go unnoticed. You'll see this in figure 9.3, the levels of listening in the book, that when listening with a me focus, only three levels of listening are possible. At level one, you're pretending to listen. You may nod and feign interest at intervals throughout the conversation while you're actually distracted thinking about or doing something else. This usually happens when someone interrupts you at your desk and you don't ask them to make time later. So you continue the task you're doing and try to pretend to listen to the staff member. This is overtly obvious to the person you're talking to and unless they already know the answer or are just looking for a yes from you, the conversation is generally pointless. At level two, you are selectively listening. This is where your attention is divided between the conversation and something else. You're listening for keywords to respond to and absorb only a fraction of the information being provided. It is common for leaders who like only one high-level snapshot or headline pieces of information to do this, and when they're speaking with someone who speaks in a lot of detail, and gives a lot of information. You may zone out while the person is sharing information that you don't deem to be valuable, and then zone back in when you hear certain keywords. 
Listening in this way doesn't open up curiosity and often you miss the opportunity to learn about how the other person thinks and the context surrounding what is being said. At level three, you're listening to respond. I found this is where most leaders sit. You hear just enough to get the general idea of the conversation and then start thinking through your own response. Once you've come up with a response, you may interrupt or try to finish their sentence or pretend to listen until they've finished and immediately share your response. Similar to selectively listening, when listening to respond, you can miss understanding where the other person is coming from and how their point of view is being formed. The me focus stages of listening are generally ineffective and a big waste of time for both parties and they erode trust. For a leader to become a good listener, they need to operate from a we-focus position, which opens up two further levels of listening. At level four, you are listening to understand. This is where you become fully present to the person you're speaking with. You give your full attention, clear your mind and remove all distractions, along with the need to get the conversation over quickly. When you listen to understand, you'll be curious about the content and the context. You often will not respond immediately to what the other person is saying. You will wait until the other person has finished speaking before considering your own response. This means the conversation will have gaps of silence throughout. So if you're someone who doesn't like silence, you may feel quite awkward or uncomfortable to begin with, but stick with it because the feeling will soon pass. It is the silence that allows what has been said to be fully absorbed and allows you to consider a number of possible responses and uncover the one which will be most appropriate for the situation. And at level five, you are listening to connect. This is where you set judgment aside, clear your mind of assumptions and fully listen. You're listening not only for content, but context but also for the other person's thought processes and how they came to certain conclusions. You will understand to appreciate their perspective, even when it differs from your own, and become aware of how they use their delete, distort, generalize filters to get to the point that they're at. You will find that the more you listen to connect, the more you will build a deeper level of trust and the more the other person will respect you. It's also where the other person will learn to listen in a similar way. It's through listening to connect that it's hard to dislike someone because the more you know about someone, the more you respect their views and their ways of thinking. When you listen with a we focus, you allow your staff to feel heard, feel like their opinion matters and feel like they're contributing to something bigger than themselves. Not enough people in the world listen but we all want to feel heard. It's a dilemma that can be solved by each individual learning how to listen to connect. And that's where you will inspire respect. How you ask. To demonstrate true curiosity, listening will only get you halfway. The other half comes from your ability to ask questions. And it's not just any question, but powerful questions that evoke further thought or challenges ways of thinking. So let's take a look at some powerful questions that you could consider asking your staff in the next conversation you have with them. Contrary to popular belief, asking why isn't always the best question. 
It is really powerful when trying to understand the intrinsic motivators driving a person's actions. I use the why question to understand what's important to my clients to help them gain clarity in their direction and set a vision and goals for the future. Where I wouldn't ask why is when a staff member, when I wanted them to consider other alternatives to a situation. One of my clients, the owner of a fast-growing business, was feeling frustrated with his staff being late to work each morning. He couldn't understand why their behaviour continued despite repeated conversations about getting to work on time. When I asked him to talk me through the conversation, he said he would simply ask, why were you late? His staff would respond quickly with a myriad of reasons, such as the traffic was terrible, my wife forgot to set the alarm, or I couldn't get the kids in the car. All valid reasons and all focused on the staff member justifying and reinforcing their behavior. In this type of conversation, asking why actually prevented the staff member from seeing things from a different perspective and considering the impact of their actions on the people around them and the performance of the business. To get his staff to take responsibility for their punctuality, my client had to change the way he was asking his question. Instead of asking, why were you late? He started to ask the following questions to open up the conversation and get his staff to come to their own conclusion on the impacts of their tardiness. I noticed you were late this morning. What happened? Okay, what might be the impact of you being late? And then continue to ask what else and what else until the staff member has exhausted the list of potential impacts. How might you do things differently to ensure that you get to work on time? Again, ask what else and what else until they've exhausted those list of potential impacts. When will you commit to making this change? Where will you make this change? Who might be able to support you through this change? And the final question, do you need any support from me? The power of the pause. The final component to becoming curious, let's call this the cherry on top, is your ability to hold the silence. I call this the power of the pause. It is only through the pause that our brains switch on and we can think more deeply about things. Research conducted by Mary Rowe in schools in 1974 found that students, when asked a question, needed more than just a few seconds to process information and formulate a response. When this didn't occur, students were more likely to grow a dependence on the teacher and do their thinking for them. Rowe argued that when the teacher becomes a non-stop talker, students have no chance to sit and think over what is being said to formulate intelligent responses or to ask for clarification. When you apply this to your team, you may see why your staff are reluctant to speak up or think for themselves. I have observed many monthly one-on-one discussions where the leader doesn't wait any longer than one or two seconds before offering a solution, rephrasing or providing hints on the answer. If the staff member remains quiet long enough, the conversation will simply carry on and so will the undesired behaviour. This dependence can also extend to staff wanting confirmation on the smallest decisions, making it very difficult for the team to continue to perform in the absence of their leader. To break behaviours of dependence and to bring out the best in your ability to listen and ask, create a habit of pausing after you ask a question. 
Try counting to five slowly in your head. One one thousand, two one thousand, three one thousand, four one thousand, five one thousand. For as long as it takes for your staff member to respond to the question. Rose Research reported that when pause time increased to three to five seconds, appropriate responses from students increased, failure to respond decreased, and comparing data between themselves increased. It is through a leader's curiosity that powerful questions can be formed, and this in turn encourages deeper thinking and a confidence from everyone to make better decisions. Adaptable. The definition of adaptable is to be able to adjust to new conditions or to be able to be modified for new use or purpose. What got you to where you are today won't be enough to get you to where you want to be tomorrow. One of the common mistakes new leaders make is assuming that they can continue to work in a way that they always have and continue to be successful. It's like the business that's still doing all of the advertising through print newspaper and refusing to go online because that's what made them successful in the past. It's only a matter of time before they're no longer seen and have to close their doors. Here's a real life example. Let me share with you a story about Brendan, who was an extremely talented individual. He was the highest performer in his team and was promoted into a leadership role after just eight months. When Brendan first stepped into his role, he led by example. He did his own work, but also continued to pick up the slack from the rest of the team. After all, his new role now was to make the whole team successful. If the team saw him working hard, surely they will work harder. After doing this solely for six months, Brendan became unwell and was off work for two weeks. He knew the stresses of the role and that played a big part of his illness and also knew something had to change. So he decided enough was enough and changed his leadership style to a position of authority. He became the boss. Over the next six months, Brendan gave orders. He alienated his team and slowly eroded the once vibrant team culture. Absenteeism increased and so did staff turnover. Brendan was at a loss. What was he doing wrong? So here's the thing. No one-size-fits-all approach works with leadership. There isn't even an approach that would work for a whole team for a whole day on its own. To be a successful leader and build a dynamic team, you must be adapting all of the time to different people, to different situations, and to different contexts. And to adapt easily and effortlessly, that takes practice. Using the six styles of leadership, To start working on adaptability, I encourage leaders to become familiar with Daniel Goleman's six styles of leadership. The six styles are simply to understand, and you can easily identify which ones you do well and which ones you don't. You can then work on becoming good at all the styles so that when you need to adapt, each option will be natural and automatic. The six styles are, number one, visionary or authoritative. This style is intended to inspire and mobilize people toward a vision or future goal, with a leader taking a come-with-me approach. This style works best when change requires a new vision or when a clear direction is needed. Number two, affiliative. 
This style is intended to create harmony and build emotional bonds with a people comes first stance. It's best used to heal rifts in a team or to motivate people during stressful circumstances. Number three, democratic. This style is intended to forge consensus through participation and using a what do you think approach. This style works best when building buy-in or consensus or hoping to get input from valuable employees. When using this style, the leader must take the time to understand the views of all of their staff. So definitely not the style to use when looking for a quick fix. If you have invested time in building relationships with your team, you're likely to understand what's important to them and what they would want. You may only need to bring your team together when the change is contentious or when you have a new person join. Other than that, the team are likely to trust that you have their best interests front of mind. Number four, coaching. This style is intended to develop people for the future using a try this attitude. It works best when helping an employee improve performance or develop long-term strengths. If you were were to have a default style that you'd use most of the time, this would be my preference. It encourages self-discovery and empowers staff to come up with their own solutions and course of action. It is the coaching style that will support you in building capability across your team. Number five, commanding or coercive. This style is intended to demand immediate compliance with a do what I tell you stance. It works best in emergencies or during crisis situations where you need your team to move fast and without question. You would use this style sparingly because the overall impact on the team is negative. Some staff may respond well to the directness and urgency of this style, but most will be intimidated and hurt. So be careful about when you apply it. Number six is pace setting. This style is intended to set high standards for performance with the leader asking their staff to do as I do. It works best when doubts exist among staff around the reality of achieving a certain thing or the task has never been done before. The leader working towards it shows that it is possible. This is the style where many leaders continue to do the work and again is overly negative because the high change your team will continue, there's a high chance your team will continue to rely on you to pick up the slack when things get busy. I say to the leaders that come to my training that commanding and pace setting styles should be used like condiments, like salt and pepper, instead of the meal itself. Just a little of each will produce flavor and enhance the meal. Too much will ruin it completely. Goldman's leadership that gets results expands on each of the styles and gives some great ideas on how to adapt. So grab a copy for reference or simply find this model online and become familiar with what it looks like. Looking at intentions versus actions. Being adaptable means you never give up. You're always in search of different ways of doing things and motivating your staff. That bothers me when leaders say things like the following, I've tried everything, it just doesn't work, when they've tried only three things. They're not cut out for the role, when they've left them to figure out things on their own. They have a poor attitude, uh, because the leader hasn't worked on the relationship. They should know how to do their job, but the leader hasn't invested time in teaching them. They're resistant to change. When the leader has rushed something through 
and surprised everyone with it. They take advantage of my kindness when the leader says yes to everything and never challenges their staff. For every comment you make about why things won't work, there's a reason that points straight back to you and how you've led your staff to that point. Whenever the outcome is different from what you'd intended, that's feedback on your ability to read a situation and apply a certain approach. It is your feedback to try something different and to continue to adapt until you get the right outcome. I was introduced to a really simple model a few years ago, and it's figure 9.4 in the book, that helps to break this down. The model looks at three things, your intention, the action you took, and the impact of that action. What we tend to do is assume our intention was rejected rather than looking at the action we took to deliver it. The following provides an example. So the real life example. Sandra noticed that every time a staff member, Robin, answered the phone, she was abrupt and monotone. Yet when speaking with someone face to face, she had melody in her voice and was really warm. Sandra wanted Robin to become more aware and change her behavior. The following breaks, what, breaks down what Sandra did into her intention, her action and her impact. So Sandra's intention. To help Robin build awareness and build better relationships with people over the phone. So her intent was positive. Sandra's action. Sandra plucked up the courage to give the feedback, which she usually avoided, and walked over to Robin's desk straight after Robin had hung up from the phone. She burst out with, do you know you're a real cow when you speak to people over the phone? <laughs> you should change that. This action was direct, forceful, and used poor humor, catching Robin by surprise. The impact, Robin replied, okay, and then took the rest of the week off as sick leave because she was so angry at Sandra for speaking to her like that, asking herself, who does she think she is telling me I'm a cow? She's the real cow. So definitely a negative impact. At this point, Sandra could easily conclude that Robin didn't respond to any feedback well, making her not the right fit for the team. She might start to distance herself even further from Robin. Or she could look at the role that she played in delivering a well-intended message and consider what she might do differently. Here's how changing her action could lead to different types of impact. So the intention stays the same, but Sandra's action. She made some objective notes on what she'd observed in the phone call with Robin. Then when she went to Robin's desk, she asked if she had a few minutes to have a chat. She found a meeting room that was casual and didn't have a table. She first asked Robin if everything was okay. Then she framed the conversation with, I know you're working really hard on communication this year and that's a key focus area. And so I'm wondering if I could provide you with some feedback. Sandra waited for Robin to agree and then proceeded to share what she saw, heard, thought and felt. She then asked Robin what she thought about the call upon reflection. The coaching conversation continued with questions and offers of support. The action was still direct, but more considered and more objective and allowed Robin the time to reflect and ask questions. And the impact? Robin was grateful that Sandra invested her time in her development and helped her to realize that her phone manner was having a negative impact on the way she might have been perceived by people she spoke to over the phone. She also now knew what she could do to improve. Overall, a positive impact. 
If you can focus on aligning your intention with the overall impact through the actions that you take, you'll start to see the different outcomes. And as the saying goes, if at first you don't succeed, try, try, try again until you get it right. That's what being adaptable is all about. I'll finish this section with a quote that was attributed to Benjamin Franklin that relates well to adaptability. Remember not only to say the right thing in the right place, but far more difficult still to leave unsaid the wrong thing at the tempting moment. Engagement. Once you're open to different perspectives, committed to asking questions, curious to learn and adapting your approach for optimal outcomes, your staff will engage. They will commit and they will buy in to your vision, your direction for the future, your goals, and most importantly, to each other. They will be inspired by you to be like you. You will be the leader that they will want to follow. For staff to buy into a particular change, idea, vision, or business approach, they need to feel like they get it. They need to feel like they have been included as part of the solution. Many leaders treat buy-in like it's a simple conversation with their staff, which can be held just before the change is scheduled. They'll bring everyone together in a room and where they will tell them what's going on and what's about to happen. Kind of like your neighbor telling you that they're having a massive party on their house on Saturday night. So there'll be some noise and tough shit if you don't like it because the DJ has been ordered and the guests have replied, but they're doing the neighborly thing and letting you know, sure, this approach might be okay for your neighbors if it's only a once off and you don't plan on living there for too long, but use this approach with your team and you lose respect. And when they don't respect you, they're unlikely to embrace the change and actually come to the party. Change is too often rolled out way too quickly and with way too little involvement or engagement of staff. And so often the change is shut down like a party at midnight when the police arrive for the third time. It takes double the effort to go back to the beginning, correct the change, make the adjustment and build the commitment with your staff when if you'd focused on the right areas at the right time, the change would have been successful the first time. Aside from the obvious cost and effort that goes into redoing things, Getting it wrong also erodes the confidence your team has with you as the leader. When you're not keeping them informed, seeking different perspectives and adapting your approach, how are you expecting to gain and retain the respect of your team? A dynamic leader understands that to gain commitment from their people, they need to feel like they've been involved. They need to feel like they matter and they need to feel like their leader cares about their opinion. When your team buy into an idea, they will engage and when you have the engagement of your staff, you will have a superpower. You have a group of people who are fully committed to making things work. And this trust and engagement will be part of your culture. Your team won't take time to weigh up the pros and cons. They'll back you 100% because you care about perspective. You act with curiosity and you adapt to every situation to achieve the best outcome. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Dynamic Leader Podcast. I hope you found some value in it. My biggest mantra in life is to pay it forward. As a leader, you have your own unique experience and this could make a huge difference to someone else. So I encourage you to tell your leadership story, your failures and your successes, along with what you've learned along the way. Let's make the leadership playground safe enough for leaders to fall and get back up again. By the way, 
If you have a leadership story that is worth telling, I'd love to hear from you and even have you on one of my podcasts. So drop me a note and let's have a conversation. Thanks so much for listening.